Hi everyone, and thanks for joining this latest podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills Pensions Practice. This is the latest in our series of Pensions and ESG, following on from the previous podcast we released recently with Emma Douglas, Head of DC at Legal and General Investment Management. I'm Michael Lahan of Council in our Pensions Department, and I'm pleased today to be joined by Caroline Escott, Senior Investment Manager at RPMI Railpen. Caroline, thanks very much for joining us. A delight to be here. Thank you, Michael. Not at all. So just to sort of start of a 10, I mean, could you tell us just a little bit about your career um, to sort of today, how, how your interest in sort of investment stewardship ESG um, sort of began and how, how you've come to be at sort of um, Railpen? Yes, of course. So I had studied economics and politics at university. And to me, it was really fascinating about what could happen and how dynamic it was at the intersection between financial markets and policy and politics. So straight after university, I went into um, lobbying and specialised in financial services clients and then also did a stint in Parliament working on financial services policy issues. And it was around that time, so maybe about 10, 12 years ago, when I was beginning to get interested in ethical clothing, thinking about where my food came from and and organic produce and and ethics throughout the food processing chain. Um, And I thought there was something really interesting here, but it wasn't until I interviewed for and then got a job as head of public policy at the UK Sustainable Investment Finance Association that I really started getting to grips with the industry with responsible investment as a way to not only do good, but also really improve your, your risk-adjusted returns. And that was when I was well and truly bitten by the bar, yeah. working with asset managers, working with asset owners and these kinds of issues. I then went to a few other financial services trade associations, always working on pensions issues or investment policy issues or pensions investment policy issues and a little bit sustainable investment there as well and then at the Pension Lifetime Savings Association where I led their investment and stewardship policy and advocacy work and the wonderful thing about working in pure policy is that you do feel like you are making a difference to Mm. the regulatory architecture the context in which we all operate um, and which has the power to nudge us or direct us to act in certain ways but sometimes it does feel like you're a little far removed from the people who are trying to help from the end beneficiaries. So when the opportunity came up to apply for a role at RPMI Railpen, this corporate governance and responsible investment pioneer, and to lead the stewardship work and to lead the corporate governance work and to be a bit closer to the end mm. saver, I leapt at the opportunity. How have you found that then? So you say you've, you've got a bit closer to the coal face. Still, still doing a bit of policy, but you're kind of dealing with nuts and bolts now. How are you finding that sort of transition? In some ways easier than I had feared. So there was a little bit of a nibbling thought in my head that you've done the policy and the theory. What's it going to be like putting into practice? But in fact, the work that I'd done at the PLSA, there was a lot of policy, but of course there's a lot of member guidance yeah. and, and voting guidelines and practical input um, uh, or or publications for the industry to pay attention to. So it hasn't been that dissimilar. I think it's interesting now feeling the impact of the different things that we have to do and sort of regulatory requirements Mm. and and thinking about the disclosure piece as well because we're right in the middle of producing our stewardship co-disclosures and PRI disclosures and so on. And you feel that in a way in how sort of pension scheme 
in a way that you sort of heard about it and you heard yeah. about it a lot at the Pension Lifetime Savings Association. You understood that it matters to your members, but the impact is very different. But it's been fantastically rewarding so far. The the ability to, to take the PLSA voting guidelines, for instance, and we've just published our voting policy today and it incorporates a few additional lines around various things like climate accounting and, and workforce policy. Some yeah. of the things that I was working on at the PLSA the ability to be able to put that into practice has been the most fantastic privilege so far. I'm really enjoying it. I sit on the legislative subcommittee of the Society for Pension Professionals, mm, and I, yeah. I'm leading on their response to the sort of TCFD regs that have just been recently published. And we we had a conversation the other day with DWP. It was, it was great to get their insight into the sort of policy intentions behind the regulations. It's quite interesting. It's the first time they've ever used their regulatory making powers to expand on the trustee knowledge and understanding requirements. And what's even more interesting is those will only, or current as currently drafted, they only relate to those schemes that will be in scope of TCFD, which I think is 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 really interesting. And I think they were quite keen. And I think the, again, the pensions minister and the government as a whole has been quite keen to say, listen. ESG isn't just about the environment and climate change, and climate change isn't just about TCFD, but there is this focus on TCFD at the moment. And because it's quite cutting edge, just generally TCFD reporting and the sort of the you're right, the work that the Transition Pathway Initiative's been doing and the LSE have been doing, they're starting to try and come to grips with non equity based assessments. So, not just looking at companies, but can we look at funds and funds of funds and private equity and how do we assess the sort of scope one two three emissions for those type of investments it's all very cutting edge and i think it's slightly not necessarily unnerving for the trustees but that the industry as a whole which can be quite slow to change is thinking well crikey this is completely new and unfamiliar to us because you know previously trustees have just had to report on what they're doing TCFD now sets up a framework of how to do it. It doesn't mandate the decisions you need to reach, but it does sort of set this framework. And that framework is specifically geared up for TCFD to encourage trustee bodies or corporates, which TCFD was originally aimed at, to to think about their their carbon impact and and, and climate impact. And I think one of the things that some trustees are, are wary about is there's that impinging our freedom to make investment decisions and you know coupled with the knowledge understanding it's, there's there's a lot for them to go through and i think the the encouraging thing by government is they recognize that but they've kind of said to everybody we know this is a lot but you've got to do it because it's really important i guess the question for you is how is that playing out in i know royal pen have been doing this quite a while but how are they gearing up for tcfd and these new requirements i guess is is, is my question yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really good question. Uh, and one thing just to just to emphasise in terms of what you were saying, I think that you're right. I think the government has in its statutory draft, sorry, statutory mm. guidance, been really admirably clear that this really is as far as trustees are able. So um, where there are issues with getting the data, just demonstrate you've taken reasonable and proportionate steps in order to do that, recognising as you were saying that there are, it is easier to get clear, consistent data for some kinds of assets and some kinds of sectors than it, than it is for others. And additionally, this, this phased approach that they're taking, where it is 
the larger schemes who are much more likely to be able to have access to the kinds of expertise they need, be it external, be it internal, as, as is the case at Railpen, um, and to be able to have the capacity to, to do the training and to, to upskill where necessary. I think that's also been an extremely sensible and pragmatic approach. But turning to how Railpen is approaching it, so you are right that we are in quite a, a privileged position. So we have been supporters of TCFD for a very long time. We've been encouraging our portfolio companies, as you say, they were the initial focus of TCFD. We've been encouraging our, our companies to report against TCFD for, for a long time. We were some of the first investors to exclude investments from our universe on, on climate grounds. And we've had climate lines around expertise of board directors and, and this year around incorporation of climate change assumptions into the financial accounts in our voting policy. But, you know, we've been some of the first people to do that. We've actually also already for the last couple of years been producing a TCFD report. Mm. So at a very high level, but using that structure, which we think is a very good one, going through the governance, thinking about incorporation into our strategy, we have already undertaken scenario analysis. And in fact, when we were responding to government's consultation, we were able to see through some of the learnings from our experience of that, which I understand they, they found helpful. And then all the way through to thinking about metrics. So we already publish our carbon footprint and we also um, undertake a, a weighted average carbon intensity as well across our listed equity portfolio. So we are some of the way there and we've actually recently published in December a much bigger, meatier climate-related disclosure, which we like to think of as a halfway house. We're not required to do it yet. Mm. You know, the, the actual timing of our first property CFD report um, isn't for quite some time, but we wanted to do something which pulls the information together in a way that was accessible to members and that was a little bit of a step up beyond what we've done before. But that aside, there is still work for us to do. So we are already thinking very seriously across Railpen how we go further on our climate approach in terms of incorporation to our asset allocation, in terms of how we decarbonize across different portfolios, how we also invest for carbon opportunities as well. We know that even though we interact with the trustee board a lot on climate issues and we've already had our first deep dive of this year, which was a half-day session, we've got quite a few coming up over the next year, one of which will be specifically devoted to climate change, um, that we will need to feed into the process at the trustee board where mm. they use this as an opportunity to take a step back and to think about um, you know, incorporation of, of climate all the way through their governance processes and how they work with us and we're really lucky because we have a trustee board that's actually really engaged in these issues and is always pushing us to go further. So we don't have too many concerns there. As with the rest of the industry, you know, the, even, even leading people, you know, the climate investment piece is pretty far advanced. But it's thinking about incorporation of climate change and the scenario analysis and the impact on the, on the funding side and on the liability side as well. Mm. It's still an evolving industry in terms of the kinds of services you can get from external providers. So that will be something that we'll need to focus on over the next few months. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Again, going back to the 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 government has a very good handle, I think, on this and appreciation of the evolving nature. So, for example, they, they have said, you know, Paris alignment is not for now. We're going to concentrate on TCFD. 
and we recognize that you know our guidance needs to be flexible because it is an evolving sphere but i was i was really interested given given that royal pen you have have, have 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 as you said not not completely there but you've done some of the learning some of the thinking for those trustees or advisors to trustees of schemes that are in that first wave so you know first of october this year the tcf governance obligations will come into force and then the reporting will have to follow do you do you have kind of some top tips that they might be thinking about if if the schemes that just haven't started on this thing because there are i think what came out of the consultation was there are sort of a group of those first wave schemes that just simply haven't done anything so far and sort of top tips for sort of where to start and sort of things to look out for and practical things to do uh yes certainly so um i suppose the first thing to try to understand is what information you already have and what your your fund manager is already doing what your investment consultant can already provide in terms of um their assessment, their understanding of climate change, um, and and you know how they consider whether there are any other bits of that particular um, consultancy firm that that consider scenario analysis and that will undertake scenario analysis, or whether they are capable of doing helping you in sort of a, an RFP process for, for finding someone to do the scenario analysis, or of course whether or not you just want to to do the the pact at all, um, and then thinking about what you already have in terms of governance framework, so. You know, do you have climate change as a risk factor in your in your risk register, for mm. instance? Um, making sure that you have an understanding of the roles and responsibilities. So, have you delegated to an investment subcommittee? What have their discussions been on on climate change so far, and how should they be taking it forward? Doing an assessment of the board skills as well, um, in the in the same way that you'll be doing a board effectiveness assessment or a trustee effectiveness assessment every year, you know, incorporating expertise on climate change is something specific within that. And then, again, on the roles and responsibilities piece, thinking about those objectives, for instance, your investment consultants, have you actually explicitly incorporated expertise on climate change or support and scenario analysis in your objectives already? If you have, congratulations. If mm. not, think about what you can do in order to, in order to pull that through. The other Sort of apart from the, the government side of things, making sure you start working on that and even some of the basics and, and having a clear understanding of what you already get and starting on that now. The other thing that I'd probably just point out is getting to grips with scenario analysis um, and getting to grips with what the best approach looks like for you, what the scenarios are that you're going to choose. Scenario analysis, certainly from our experience, has been one of the more technical pieces of work that we've had to get to grips with. And I say this, we as, as an in-house sustainable ownership team with, with expertise on these issues and don't underestimate the amount of time that's going to take, not just the cost if you decide to use an external provider, but also the, the management time as it were, the, the project time, and then how you feed the results through um, to, to the trustee board and of course how the trustee board sets the framework for the scenario analysis too. So I think those would be the main things I'd highlight from our experience. And then one of the things that Railpen has been keen to do even before the latest consultations were released has been to think about how we incorporate questions on TCFD, questions in terms of climate metrics and data that we will find useful across all our asset 
developed classes. So thinking about how we weave in CG diligence questionnaires for private equity or for VC funds as well, which is something that we started doing about a year ago, um, trying to make sure that we are in as good a shape as possible to be able to support the trustee board in producing their own TCFD disclosures sort of at the other end. Yeah. But also feeling grateful to the government for under, you know, for having the flexibility and understanding that schemes will be doing their best, but there are some bits of the industry or, or some managers of particular asset classes and funds who just aren't at the stage yet to give us the information we need, but might well be in the next two, three years. One of the things that we'll be paying particular attention to is the work that they've will be doing on TCFD reporting for, for companies, um, as well as forthcoming work from the FDA in TCFD disclosures and requirements for asset managers as well. So making sure that there is that flow of information as far as possible, all the way up through the investment chain to the asset owner. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Something that you, you mentioned previously is about the membership. Yeah, because we've got these reports, we've got these TCFD reports that go out there. Who are they for? You know, what's the the intention behind them? Because if we step back and think about TCFD, how it was originally framed by the sort of financial stability board that set it up and sort of all the work that Mark Carney and um, Michael Bloomberg was doing behind it, it was providing information to shareholders and investors so they could make informed decisions about capital allocation and that makes perfect sense in a in a in a market and it was born out of the sort of concerns coming out of 2008 and the great financial crash and the lack of transparency and and disclosure and the the concept being the more information that we've got the more um sort of consistent uh information we've got on climate related risks for for companies um, that will inform investor decisions. But of course, for pension schemes, that's not quite the same because members, they aren't shareholders. Yes, they can take transfers out, but I don't think anybody in the government is is thinking um, TCFD should be a reason for people to transfer out necessarily, particularly from DB. <laughs> Different when it comes from DC. And I think that's in, interesting and informative because TCFD started life in in the pensions context, in a DC environment, the idea that you could move your pots and you can make decisions, it's been brought into DB. I'm interested in your thoughts on that, but also your experience of, you know, you produce these TCFD reports, they can be incredibly complicated. You're dealing with very sophisticated things such as scenario analysis and comparison of portfolios using assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. What challenges do you think there are for engaging with the membership to the extent that that those TCFD reports are useful and and what the purpose behind that is? Um, Yes, so I think you're right in that a lot of these regulatory disclosures and not just TCFD reports, but even thinking about things like chair's annual statement have, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on what particular disclosure is, often a couple of different audiences in mind. So Chair's annual statement, in an ideal world, they're a really helpful, interesting, member-friendly document, and lots of schemes do do their very best in order to ensure that they do that. But then they've got to tick a whole load of, of regulatory requirements and discuss certain issues 
in the detail that does not lend itself to being very accessible to members. Mm. And it, it's a similar story with TCFE documents. So even the government itself in its initial consultation said that it expected most TCFE documents would be, and I think the phrase was quite lengthy and detailed. <laughs> yes. And we know that, you know, there's a TPR interest as well, although the mandatory penalty will only apply where there is absolute non-production of TCFE report. We mm. know that civil society and campaign groups are going to be looking at this. And of course, one of the ultimate attentions of a lot of these disclosures is, you know, yes, transparency is a great and, and we want you to communicate to members about this, but also it's trying to provide that policy nudge to help raise standards of climate governance or standards money assessments or all those kinds of things up across the industry. So yeah. the idea that, that, you know, shining a light on, on what schemes are doing will encourage schemes to really put their best foot forward and, and, and think about certain things and certain issues in a particular way. Um, I think um, that it will probably be quite tricky for a lengthy and detailed TCFD report to be really fascinating to any of the, <laughs> perhaps the most engaged members. And at Railpen, we work extremely hard to try to talk about all different kinds of technical stuff, particularly on the sustainable ownership side, in a way that is straightforward and accessible. Um, we, you know, still early days, but even now there are already discussions around, well, you know, let's maybe produce a full TCFD report as we are required to do. Mm. And then maybe let's have a little bit of a summary, um, a really nicely designed two, three pager that pulls out some of the key points from the TCFD report that is deliberately designed to be engaging to the members. And, you know, if they want to find out more, fine, then you link them straight back to, to the full TCFD report as well. Um, because, you know, you're right in that there's a difference between DB and DC in terms of member engagement, what engaged members can, can do if, if they're particularly unhappy. I would say that member engagement is important whatever kind of scheme you're in. Um, particularly in a freedom and choice environment when you're getting to, to you know, making those decisions. Um, I do think that there is power and there is benefit um, for member engagement. Actually, overall, if you can tell a really compelling story about how you are using a member's savings to have an impact on the world around them, on the issues they care about, be that modern slavery or workforce well-being or, or climate change. Um, and there is actually quite a, a growing body of research to demonstrate that if you can tell this good story in responsible investment, you can build trust in your pension scheme. So there's yeah. an interesting insight research that said that. Or you could potentially even um, encourage, you know, uh, DC savers, particularly younger savers, to, to contribute more into their pensions, which, of course, is really positive for, for member mm. outcomes at the very end of this, which is what all of this is about. So at Railpen, we, we take the member communication aspect seriously. We will wait and see what the TCFD report looks like, but, but we're already thinking about, okay, well, how do we take that away and turn it into a snappy summary document? How do we yeah. make sure that we proactively communicate the key learnings through our member newsletters as well, so we already work quite closely with the member communications team 
um, already on top of climate change and, and there's a schedule of things going out this year. But how do we work to, to highlight the work that we're doing and hopefully actually encourage a dialogue as well? We don't really just want to be uh, monologuing at members. It would be great to, to get some of that two-way communication back at us and, and see uh, see what kind of issues they really care about and, and what kind of questions they're asking. That's that's great. I can imagine if there are trustees sort of listening to this, I imagine the trustees, some some trustees sort of shaking their head at that and thinking, no, no, I just <laughs> don't want to know what the, the, the members think. I, I'm the trustee. I'm the one that makes the investment decisions. In in a, I recently took part in a, or listened to an IPEBLO uh, uh, conference, which is an international sort of pensions body, and they had they were comparing the models in the Dutch model with the UK model and the sort of um, Australian and US model, Canadian model, and the speaker uh, talking about the Dutch model was saying, listen, it's it's absolutely normal in Holland for schemes to engage with members and to have members engage that's probably because they've moved away from the db model to a kind of collective dc model perhaps but it's that is something that i found as a practitioner uh, uh, as a legal advisor the idea that the trustees would go and get member views on investment that's a that is a leap for me um you know and i think it's been a leap for some trustees as well but you're saying actually at rail pen the the, the railways pension scheme that that's encouraged and just really interested in that have you have you found that engagement because i think i think you're right this is a this is a potential tool for getting member engagement particularly dc particularly younger savers um if they you know you think of the 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 richard curtis make my money matter campaign of having people understand that their pensions their savings can make a real difference in terms of capital allocation I just wonder, yeah, what your experiences of, of that member in communicate. Are you seeing it yeah. growing or do you find that people are very engaged on this or are you trying to still encourage it? Um, yeah, so the first thing I should say is that I, I absolutely agree that trustees should have primacy over investment <laughs> yes. um, decisions. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, the government has been very clear on that throughout as well. You know, trustees yeah. have a fiduciary duty to invest members' best interests, not incompatible responsible investment in the slightest that being said i think any good trustee board has an eye to member views as well as their needs um, and has an eye to member wants as well across a whole range of things you know that's a really key part of what ensuring a good member outcome is all about in terms of what we've seen at railpen direct member engagement to the so team you know every so often we get the odd query and i know that every sort of the trustee board get the odd query as well from members it is quite often in response to uh, an article that's been done in a member newsletter um, mm. which is nice you know it's always lovely to hear that mm. people are actually reading some of the stuff that we're producing we do get more information around when we publish our sustainable ownership annual report so every year the last several years we've published a standalone responsible investment report that just just again talks about what we've done uses case studies uses illustrations you know tries to link it back to the, to the trustee beliefs and, and how we've we've invested in line with, with those beliefs as well so we, we do have all of that we also uh, value the input of our pensions committees so in terms of the sponsor employers um, a significant proportion of them have their own pension committees um, yeah. And that is an additional step to help the trustee board, but of course also the 
sustainable ownership team, because we meet with the pension committee quite a lot, to get an additional insight into what members might be thinking. And the pension committees do feed through a lot of really interesting um, questions our way. And it's just helpful when it comes to thinking about even our thematic engagement priorities for this year. One of the things that um, you know we, we've been we've been working on is sort of client account and workforce issues, and it, it's comforting to hear that actually those some of the questions come through from the pension committee as well on those issues. So yes, we're doing it for financially material reasons, but it is clearly something that committees and and by proxy members care about as well. I think across the industry, when I chat to other pension schemes, sounds like levels of direct member engagement on responsible investment issues are increasing. Yeah. When the, the, the questions happen there quite often around climate change or sometimes around um, modern slavery and human rights is quite a popular topic as well. Mm. But even though it's increasing relatively at an absolute level, it is still very, very, very low. But yeah. I'm hopeful that one of the side effects of some of the disclosures that, that were produced, um, things like the implementation statements, of course, coming up as well, hopeful that more information out there, and we do try to make it as accessible as possible, will encourage more member queries on this. And, and the work of campaigns like Make My Money Matter and, and Client Earth, a big money campaign as well, that are focused on the saver, I am sure will mean that we get more queries from, from the public, from, from members as time goes on. So we should be ready for that. Yeah, I can think of one of my old partners, um, the idea that every sort of Every generation of pension advisors thinks they found the thing to get member engagement and that, you know, it won't, it won't be the sort of inertia that usually carries. But maybe, maybe, I think that, I think this really does have the possibility to do that. But uh, anyway, I thought just finishing up, because I realise um, uh, we've only got a certain amount of time, but I wondered, could you um, talk to us about, I know the pensions minister's re- recently written to, to schemes again he's fond of his sort of letter writing his pen pals with the um the larger pension schemes in the in the country um and and th- this time it's it's around the sort of the kind of what we were talking about earlier the the more the s and the g of esg i wondered if you'd be able to sort of talk about that and and, and maybe talk about um sort of royal pen's potential response to it uh yes of course so um the response is still in draft so, uh, you know, what I can tell you about is still only high level. But the minister has, has written to these big pension schemes as sort of a fact find. You know, how, how are you finding it? Tell me about what you're doing generally. But what was interesting to us is that in this letter, um, we've also asked the details around stewardship and around the S and the G. Mm. And that feels in keeping with... Um, you know, recent industry and I think government policy trends as well in a number of ways. So I think the first interesting thing to say is that we have seen actually quite a lot of activity just in the last couple of months from governments with support from industry bodies around stewardship Mm. and how schemes and scheme trustees exercise their voting rights or engage either themselves or through their asset managers with portfolio companies to influence positive corporate behaviour. And stewardship for us is really about putting responsible investment into practice. So, you know, I leave the stewardship at RPMI Rail Tempo. This is something I'm naturally very keen to to talk about and think about as well. And we have Mm. seen things like the Occupational Pension Schemes Council, the Asset Owners Council, I don't know if that's on the name yet, 
um, the proposed in, in the Treasury's Asset Management Task Force series of recommendations for how to improve the culture of stewardship across uh, UK asset owners. We've also, of course, seen the task force on pension scheme voting implementation being be set up by, by DWP, with support from the AMNT, and, and chaired by Simon Howard, who's been the CEO of Oxford, um, where, where I used to work, of course, at the very small world. Um, and that is going to look at what practical recommendations can uh, and support can be offered to schemes to help them influence how their voters use, um, particularly where uh, they have delegated some of that activity, but not the responsibility um, mm. to, to their managers as well. So I think that would be quite interesting. There's noticeably a lot of activity on that. The other thing that I think is worth picking up on this question around what schemes are doing around the F, and I remember at the beginning of COVID-19, there was a lot of discussion in the responsible industry about whether or not the global pandemic would knock responsible investment off the top of the agenda and people would just forget about responsible investment completely. And I think that hasn't happened. Um, COVID-19 has obviously been a very pressing priority of schemes and it has for, for individuals um, and businesses everywhere. But it has also, I think, emphasised the interconnectedness between financial markets and society and the environment. And I think in particular, it's really shone a light on the importance of a well-treated workforce um, whose health and safety are looked after, whose mental health is supported, um, who feel engaged and motivated throughout what is a really difficult time. Um, and, and the nature of, and the, the value add of having that kind of workforce, the value it adds to corporate financial success and I think we are seeing those companies who have really paid attention to, to treating the workforce fairly, who mm. have supported those people who are trying to hold down a full-time job whilst also dealing with childcare, for instance, who have provided the appropriate PPE, they have managed to function more effectively. Mm. Um, and they are also not suffering some of the potential reputational damage um, from those firms who have not been felt to treat their workforces fairly, who have not necessarily made capital allocation decisions, for instance, but feel like they reflect an awareness of what the workforce is going through or reflect an awareness of, of what the really long-term shareholders might be looking for. So I think all of that, we are now seeing much more conversation in the industry around the F. And I think it's interesting that the, the minister has chosen to, to focus on things like this. I think it's a really good time for the industry actually to use it as an opportunity to, to tell them about the work they've been doing on S issues, work that, that COVID-19 has encouraged people to do. And, and I'm hopeful that, that the minister's um, thoughts around this, whatever we see come out at the end of the process, um, all the incredibly interesting stuff that's happening in the responsible investment industry as well, I hope that that will ensure the momentum on ESG beyond the E and really beyond climate change, which is very important, continues even when the pandemic is a distant memory. Indeed. And I think actually there's going to be this interesting period, isn't there, where we transition back. And I don't think it's going to, it's, uh, my personal view is it won't be a, a quick thing. It's going to be a transition 
And again, as you say, the way that companies um, handle that transition and the flexibility of looking after workforces and how how they move back into, is it going to be kind of mixed home environment, work environment actually in the office and how you've faced some of the challenges with having some of your workforce at home, some in the office, you know, treating them the same, all of those things are going to be really interesting, fascinating, will probably bring out the same kind of issues that you've just highlighted in relation when we went in quite abruptly into lockdown. I agree. And I think it's up to the responsible investment community as well to make their expectations for perfectly good financial materiality reasons, as well, of course, there being sort of a human aspect to it as well, just to make their expectations on this clear to their portfolio companies. It's one of the reasons why it's been a key focus of, of the voting policy we've just published, and it's why it was a key focus of the engagement conversations we've been having directly and with other investors with companies over the last year, and, and why it will continue to be a key theme for our engagement going forward too. That's great. Well, I, I think that probably brings us to the end of sort of today's podcast, Caroline. So thank you so much for joining me. And I, I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to that. I find it really valuable, incredibly interesting to hear your, uh, your take. If listeners want to join us for any future episodes, they can subscribe via Herbert Smith Prehill's channel on Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud. And if there are any questions or feedback, please don't hesitate to get in touch with uh, one of your usual Herbert Smith Free Hills contacts. But other than that, Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I hope you have a, a good rest of your day. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun.